Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, and welcome to episode 8 of season 6 of the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf. I am speaking to you from the outskirts of the lovely city of Vienna, Austria. I haven't mentioned that for a while. I thought I should again. And uh, it is Sunday, June the 13th, 2021. My guest today, well, I hope I will pronounce that correctly now because it's quite a complicated name, but you have certainly heard it already. My guest is Zemaemi Jehuti Setepentoth. And he goes also for the ease of the name by Reverend Zemi. And Reverend Zemi, we will speak about his Church of Flesh and Feather. More about that a little bit later. I hope you hear a nice sound here today. I am working for the first time with a completely new audio interface. Um, well, I hope I managed to make that sound correctly. If you hear anything that's weird, please let me know. But um, to me, it sounds okay. Right. So if you want to have more information about the Thoughts Hermit podcast, um, you know what you should do. You should go to our website. I'm very grateful for all of you who listen to this show, and I am really happy to have you back. And for those of you who are here for the first time, go to ThoughtsHermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. You're going to find a lot of information about this, uh, not only this episode, but all the former episodes that are on the website and you can find all the show notes also to those former web uh, to those former episodes and it would be nice if you went there but it would also be nice is if you left me some in some input some feedback you can do that by just sending me an email at info at but on the website you will also have a a contact form and b a voicemail button and if you use the voicemail button or tab then you can send me a free voicemail it would be lovely to hear your voice and if you're something to say also to our audience here i'd be happy to play your feedback in the show while you're there well yes i have to mention it um i need your support um, please consider going to the patreon page Patreon page of Thoth Hermes, but you can access it also directly from the Thoth Hermes website. There is a button named Patreon, well, what else? And you go there and, well, please use the pledge button then on the Patreon website. From $1 per, per, per show, you are already with us, and it would be lovely to have you as a part of the supporter team here on the show. If you prefer a one-off donation, that's also possible, then you would please go to um, the same page and click on the donation button and use that one. 
Right. So as you are going to see today, um, we are speaking a lot about the form of devotion to Egyptian gods. And in that case is mostly the Egyptian god Thoth. Um, well, and that's quite a good fit for this show, I guess. Um, and uh, but in a modern way, in a contemporary way, it's a, to me, it sounds very much 21st century. What Reverend Zemi has to offer us here, even though it is strongly and very much related, of course, to the old Egyptian times um, that music wise for the music choice of this show gave me a kind of uh, inspiration i remembered a cd i had listened to about well it's almost 15 20 years back i guess and i found it again which is called mozart in egypt and it's i would call it a reinterpretation of the music by the great austrian composer mozart together with uh, instruments from Egypt, with sounds and inspiration from Egyptian music. And I thought that mix of um, Western um, classical approach and traditional Egyptian approach would be quite a nice fit for this show because it reflects a little bit, in a way, what Zemi is doing. So um, I chose three pieces for today's show from that CD. And the first one will be called, um, well, it's actually not, it doesn't have a, a real name as a, uh, it's just called Symphonie Egyptienne for traditional instruments. So Egyptian symphony for traditional instruments. It's an excerpt, of course. Uh, it's, the it's after the first movement of one of Mozart's symphony, which is used as a bass. Well, you listen to it. I think it's really charming the way they put Mozart and traditional Egyptian music together. We'll hear three pieces of that during the show. This is the first one now. Symphonie Egyptienne from that lovely CD, Mozart in Egypt. Enjoy.
Symphonie égyptienne from that lovely CD Mozart in Egypt. I hope you enjoyed. There will be two more tracks from that CD later in this show. As always, I like to present a little text for you that has been written by our guest. And in the case of uh, Reverend Zemi, or I try to pronounce the full name once again, Zemai Mi Jehuti Sete Pentot. He has recently, we will speak about that also in the interview, published that book, The Book of Flesh and Feather with Theon Publishing. It's a lovely volume. It's really, I hold it in hands. It's great. It's a dark blue big book with 
full of rituals of his uh, kind of devotion that he has developed. And I would like to read you the little introductory chapter that Reverend Zemi has given us in that book about the divine right of the Church of Flesh and Feather. The book you hold in your hands should not be mistaken simply for a work of occult and esoteric knowledge or practice. What you're holding is, in its entirety, a poetic ritual honoring the primordial and self-begotten Creator, the God of all gods and man, the Eternal Father who is crowned in furious light. The name given to this power in our opus is Jehuti Tek Teku Thoth. This ritual celebrates Jehuti in his form of divine art and allows the reader to assume the role of an emanation of God by invoking him through our earthly bodies. There was a time during mankind's evolution when art was made to celebrate a victory in war, bountiful harvests to pay homage to the gods. Art now seems to be mostly created to pass the time, thus it feels uninspired, boring or unoriginal. These pages were assembled to harken back to that time when songs were written to honor the gods. They were written to celebrate Jehuti who is in all ways all things. The spirit I call to by the name Jehuti has been referred to by many names by many people. This name was the first name and his word was the first word spoken by humanity and has been every word spoken or thought since. This is theurgy, a religious operation. Performance of this rite should be undertaken with purity and with the utmost respect for Jehuti and the gods and spirits mentioned. There will be minimal instruction for this poem's recitation included in this book and so the reader is free to and encouraged to make this ritual their own. Well, that gives you an idea of the background thought of uh, Reverend Zemi, but of course we let him speak now himself. What I would like to mention are two things, not only as usual, that we will come back in about 33 minutes to have a little musical break in the middle of that interview, as we are used to, but also that after, after the interview, after the third piece of music that we play, there will be another 10 minutes piece. It will be an, an extract from an intonation, vowel intonation meditation that uh, Zemi has produced. It can also be found on YouTube in its entirety, but that 10 minutes incantation, I think, gives you more an idea of uh, the practical side of what Zemi is talking about. It's, of course, difficult to talk about certain things. It's more easy to listen to them and, or even to see them. So if you are interested to get a little bit more of an idea of what we're talking about, stay after the interview and listen to that 10 minutes extract or go straight away to the YouTube channel of the Church of Flesh and Feather, where you find not only the full version of that uh, meditation intonation, but also uh, other videos that Zemi produces there. All right, but now we go to Illinois, to Springfield, and we will talk to Reverend Zemi of the Church of Flesh and Feather. Here comes the interview. 
And now we have a very special guest here today on the Thought Hermes podcast. And I'm very happy to speak to Zemi, well, let's say Reverend Zemi, and we will have his full name pronounced a little bit later because we want to do this properly. It's very nice to have you here. Uh, you are the creator and founder and um, reverend of the Church of Flesh and Feather. Uh, we are speaking, I believe, from the state of Illinois. And I wish you welcome on the Thought Hermes podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Actually, this is a nice um, it's not a coincidence, of course, but it's two things really go together. I named this podcast Thoth Hermes podcast for probably evident reasons. And in a very, very direct way, Thoth will be present tonight in this talk, I believe, because, of course, a lot of the work that you do is centered around the Egyptian god of, of by the name of Thoth. And um, so it's a, it's a kind of home game for us here tonight. So, Zemi, um, let me ask you. So you seem to have get, got yourself very deeply involved in Egyptian mythology, in, uh, in the backgrounds of that. Um, how does a young person in the 21st century living in Illinois start looking into Egyptian, not only history, but actively in Egyptian occultism, Egyptian um, esoteric wisdom? How... How did that happen? Why did you initially start with that? Well, it all started with uh, sort of uh, my search for religious devotion that I was comfortable maintaining. I live very deeply uh, in a very, very Christian part of this country. Um, so Christian, in fact, that I don't think any of the people around here have even opened their Bibles. So there's this expectation for you to be a practicing Christian, but there are no outlets for you to learn how to practice. You just do what you're told. And that never really settled uh, quite well with me. Uh, so not only are there many, many Christians, but uh, I mean, Springfield, Illinois has a mosque. It has two Hindu temples. Uh, there is a Coptic church about two and a half hours away. Uh, there is a very small population of Zoroastrians. So, I mean, the whole entire world somehow has just kind of piled up in the middle of this country. And so I was able to explore it for years, but not, uh, I didn't find anything that's kind of uh, sat right with me. I didn't find what was necessary for me to develop spiritually. Um, I eventually met a man named Jack Grail, who sort of showed me that ancient religions that are seen as being sort of dead to a certain population of the world uh, are okay to venerate as well. Uh, so I started to explore those. Uh, at the time, he was developing uh, his Hecate class, so I got to experience all of that. And uh, I started to uh, sort of appreciate Hecate, though there was something a little bit still not fitting in. Uh, but it was uh, in my quest through Hecate to find a religious path that I encountered so 
in a very dramatic fashion uh, in rural Missouri. Uh, my wife and I and cousins were staying out in this cabin on this pond. And early one morning, uh, a glossy ibis landed on the dock of our pond, clutching a snake in its beak. And it was in that moment when everything just sort of hit me, what was necessary in my life. And uh, I devoted myself to Thoth that day. And since then, everything has sort of started building up. So how long has that uh, been to go? Oh, man. Um, five or six years now, probably. Okay. Um, and for for those of our listeners who maybe are not aware, of course, Ibis is one of the uh, animal figures that represents the goddess of the god of Thoth in the Egyptian mythology, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but then once I started devoting myself to Thoth, all of these resources started to make themselves uh, available to me. So I was able to get very deeply into uh, Greco-Egyptian. Uh, magical practices and devotional practices. Through that, I managed to find uh, Gnosticism and the Coptic Church. And when I was sort of exploring uh, the various elements of the Coptic Church, I found that there was uh, sort of overlap between ancient Egyptian religion and the very early Christian um, for instance, a number of their uh, magical papyri list, you know, long lists of angels, Jesus, right alongside Thoth. Uh, in fact, they even frequently conflate Jesus and Thoth. So I sort of found that little area and just started to develop that. And, um, but from, let's go a, bit, a little bit back still. Um, your personal background, as far as you want to, to talk about this, um, what led you to that search? You said you were in need of a certain type of spirituality at some point, right? Um, yeah. Where did that grow out from? Was it something that was there in you from your childhood or was it educational? How, how would you say that came up to you? Well, I think in this part of the country, you're born with a certain amount of Christian guilt. Uh, just kind of already a part of you. So I was born into a community that demanded I be a Christian, but again, they didn't give me any resources uh, beyond just, well, that's what the preacher says, or that's what the priest says. And I needed some uh, kind of deeper explanations for a few things. I needed to be able to touch the element of the divine that I was worshiping. I needed it to be a part of my life. And of course, there's a whole hierarchy between uh, the farmers of central Illinois and the God that they fear. So. Sure. Okay. And you, so in fact, you are like, you are a searcher and you needed to, to find the explanation and the reasons behind it. Could we, could we say it like that? Yeah. And I still feel that way. Uh, my veneration of Thoth includes just research it's kind of convenient that way when you when you first encountered thoughts in the way you just explained um was it clear for you from the very beginning that you would push or want to push that further in the sense that you would 
create your own church that you would like to explore it that deeply that it became like a well you you say how you would define that but like a kind of your own um when i had the encounter with the ibis that i had i didn't necessarily intend to establish myself in this community the way that i did but uh, as i went along i sort of started to realize there are a lot of other people who are almost desperately trying to devote themselves but with very little luck it seems like in this community there are a lot more people telling you what you're doing is wrong than people encouraging you so i wanted to make available all of the resources i wish i would have had all of those years ago when i began this journey so to speak so uh, that is the intention of the church of flesh and feather to be uh, not just a community of people that is supportive but also uh, to provide a number of resources for people who are on their path mm -hmm. let's speak more in depth about the church a bit later maybe but um, how were you obtaining or how were you given i don't know what what word fits is a better fit in that way um those tools those necessary this necessary knowledge that you need after that encounter uh, that you had with the ibis um what happened then how did it continue was it a sudden completeness or did you find an entrance gate where you then had to carry on and how did it how did that all continue Yeah, it was just sort of a, a change in the way I saw what I was doing and I saw and interacted with the world. Um, in that moment, I realized that what I needed to encounter the divine was not um, books available at Barnes and Noble or some metaphysical store. What I needed was often very dry um, research papers. I needed to explore language. Uh, I needed to figure out the mechanisms that got me to where I was because my path led me to the divine. And if I can figure out how everything that got me where I was works, I can teach it to other people. Uh, and so from that analysis, I developed the eight naturist principles Uh, which are not laws or uh, moral code, uh, but rather um, sort of a magical system, I guess, that uh, allows a person to first encounter the divine and then de develop a tiny little cosmos around themselves wherein their devotion, well, helps them progress through life, basically. Can you maybe expand a little bit on those eight principles, uh, what they are? And uh, as far as you can explain that here in the interview, would be probably quite nice for our people to, to hear what they contain. Yeah, sure. So it's basically like, uh, see, to the ancient Egyptians, magic and religion weren't two separate things. Neither were arts or medicine. It was all one big thing. Um, so with that in mind, I sort of developed the framework uh, to develop my own um, 
I don't know, spirituality that encompasses all of those things. So uh, you um, acknowledge certain patterns, but you also admit that those patterns are meaningless. Um, you engage with the powers creating you because you yourself are creating them in a symbiotic relationship. Um, yeah, they're actually in the very back of the litanies of Thoth. I'm working on developing a class for these naturist principles um, as we speak, actually. Okay. So, so um, you just mentioned that book, uh, The Litanies of Thought. Maybe we should mention also those both those books that have appeared, I think, at the end of last year. I think Litanies of Thought is, is, is a, a, the newer one of the two, but it's, it's quite quite brand new still they are beautiful books uh, the one is called the book of flesh and feather a beautiful dark blue with gold embossed uh, book done by theon publishing it's really a wonderful book and the litanies of thought is a smaller one like a handbook you carry with you it wasn't is that the intention i believe no yeah yeah i was sort of uh, and don't tell anybody this of course uh, <laughs> but i was sort of inspired by the gideons handing out uh, their little books of psalms to yeah. litanies of thought. The Book of Flesh and Feathers sort of liturgy, it uh, is intended to deliver you to a state of ecstasy or trance um, because that is kind of the first step in this system of magic that I am developing. First, you have to create chaos all around you. So the Book of Flesh and Feather uh, sort of deconstructs uh, language as we know it and scatters it across the page. So when you're reading it, not only are you just reading words, but your whole body kind of starts to get into it. You start to sway. Uh, things start to happen with your mind. I include anybody familiar with the Greek magical papyri or any Coptic magical papyri uh, will be familiar with these long strings of vowels. Uh, I include those uh, quite a bit because they help to alter your, uh, your mind and sort of uh, get you into a little trance. So then once chaos uh, has been reached, you can start reorganizing it as you see fit. I mean, those, those, those chains of vowels that you just mentioned now, it's a bit hard to explain when you, when you don't know the book, but when you have it in front of you and you open it at almost any of those pages, it's almost like if those letters were in a poetical manner distributed on the page, not only for what you then read and say, but also visually is the visual part of how that page looks is that for you an important um, part of the of the act of the magical act or yeah. is it um, just a, is it just a visual thing for the book yeah no it's a part of uh, the general invocation process uh, that i practice um Bodily movement is very important because you're having more than just a mental experience. It's a whole body experience when you invoke a God. Uh, so I kind of, the joke that I sort of tell people is that I wrote the book of flesh and feather, not with my hands, but with my feet, because you are okay. supposed to dance around sort of as you, uh, as you read through it. It was actually partially inspired by the poetry of Vachel Lindsay, 
who is a Springfield native. Um, his publisher, Macmillan, invented a way of formatting words on a page to include uh, performance instructions in his poetry. Uh, I had that option, and we actually use them in the book of Flesh and Feather, but I wanted to sort of merge the instruction and the poetry, the written word, uh, to create one thing. So the deeper you get, theoretically, the deeper you can get into the book. You don't have to disconnect from it to read the instruction, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, once you had this encounter with the Ibis, I have to go back there once again. Um, where at that time were you already personally interested in the Egyptian history, the ancient Egyptian history, the background of all of this, or did it start? Did you research even your historical research and all that you were just talking about start also at that moment, or was that already present in your life at that moment? Well, I certainly already had an interest, uh, but in my mind. The old gods weren't options exactly, uh, and that is probably just you know, a result of growing up where and how I did. But uh, you had studied uh, who they were, and I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I already had tons of books around that you could, yeah, 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 yeah. So they were present in your mind when you when you had that. Uh, yeah, know. and I actually already had Thoth tattooed on my arm. Um, hmm. Rachel Lindsay intuitively understood how to read and write in Egyptian hieroglyphics. And he understood their purpose, which was to connect humanity with the gods. So to bring the gods to America, Vachel Lindsay created the American hieroglyphics, which is his own uh, written language. And his American hieroglyphic signature actually includes an ibis. And so, I mean, I looked at it, I've been looking at thought every single day of my life for 10 years or whatever. So it was, uh, he was sort of always perched on my shoulder, so to speak. So it was almost not such a surprise that when he appeared. Yeah, not really. He sort of just popped in and gave me permission to get as eccentric as I wanted to when it comes to worship. Uh, which again makes sense because from the outside, any any form of worship seems outlandish or eccentric or whatever. Uh, it is only these practices are only for the people within these practices, so it yeah. makes sense, I guess. Sure. Well, we want to know more about that in a moment. Um, first of all, now we have to pronounce the full name that you are that you're using may i mean if i may say that like that um uh, well how would you say that was it a given name or was it did you choose it given i mean by that encounter by uh did it come to you or how how did that name come into being and can you maybe yourself pronounce it once properly before i massacre it and don't pronounce it properly yeah it's zemiani jahuti uh but because that is a difficult name to say, I just go by Zem or Zemi or yeah. Reverend Zemi or whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, when I started to devote myself deeper to Thoth, and again, I started craving that community, uh, I began associating with certain groups of naturists. None of them, in my opinion, 
could deliver what I was looking for. So I figured I could just do it myself. And so I did. <laughs> okay. But how, how do you create a community like that? I mean, it's, I, I, I guess you have, must have been in contact with people who were in the same type of research, uh, spiritual research that you had already started yourself before, or, I mean, you don't go on the street and say, now I'm creating an ancient Egyptian uh, belief system. You, you have to have connections in that. How, how did that, how did that happen? How did you create that community? Well, I did try going on the streets and, uh, it does not work. Um, but no, it's actually kind of, it's kind of strange. Uh, when COVID started to shut everything down, I mean, there was a small group of people here in the Midwest who about once or twice a month would get together and do, uh, you know, pagan events. Uh, but when COVID shut everything down, obviously in-person stuff was sort of, uh, off the table. So we started, I started to do things online. So I made a Facebook account uh, every week I go live, uh, to do, uh, a broadcast of the opening of the shrine of flesh and feather. And I mean, pretty much almost just immediately, as soon as I started doing that, people started to come. So, uh, and shortly after that, the books came and now it's just, I feel like I can just kind of do whatever I want. It's a really bizarre, uh, really empowering feeling. <laughs> yeah. It, it has the impression that I get from the outside is that, um, your church, I, I, I'd almost call it a movement, right? Because it's, it's, it goes probably beyond the church itself. Um, is very, has become very suddenly very, present also in in those circles so that we find online as you as you said so it's not just by your activity but also by the response that you got because you need that response in order to spread the word of course and yeah. uh, is there a certain age group that is mainly concerned or how, how would you see your your members if you had to describe the average member can you do that is there some uh, common ground to all of them? Well, I would say a devotion and thought is just about the only common grounds. There are people ranging in age from teenagers to, well, a few weeks ago, our 80 something year old member died, but mm. you know, young people to very old people from all over the country. Um, I started an Etsy shop and I make, Uh, religious icons and devotional materials and things like that. And any given Monday when I ship everything off, it's going to four or five different continents. So I don't know. There is no right reason. Everyone's welcomed, um, mm -hmm. but there is no pattern emerging. It's just kind of everybody. Okay. Okay. And roughly how many people do you think follow that, uh, that group that you're leading now? Um, well, the Facebook page has just over 700 followers. Mm. Um, but I know that, I don't know, of those 700, there are probably three or 400 that participate, be it interacting with me directly or tuning into those uh, live broadcasts. Mm. Um, 
I've not really tried to figure out the exact numbers. Um, right. But it's somewhere around that. But you have a feeling of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, how would you somebody who says hmm i've heard that now for the first time it might be well the case here on on this show um and um i would be interested to know more about that i would like to get not only more information through the books that we mentioned but also i would like to know if that's a fit for me what would you suggest to such a person how how should they where should they start looking around well, get a hold of me on Facebook or find the Church of Flesh and Feather on Facebook. Um, right now, I'm the only person who's uploading anything, but I mean, that is certainly anybody can um, have, you know, guest, guest reverends, reverends for a day or whatever. Um, it's not about the Church of Flesh and Feather is not about telling you what to do but helping you get comfortable doing what you need to do. Now, that being said, um, because we don't have sort of a moral code or anything, uh, but I mean, obviously humanity has a moral code. So, I mean, <laughs> we can't justify doing everything people want to do, but uh, we will help do what is necessary, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um we have we have um, spoken about this this the, the the book of flesh and feather um can you tell me how you came to see on publishing i mean it's not every day that that somebody comes with that type of book did you did they come to you did you did they find out about you or did you bring up the idea of that book how how did the book on flesh and feather come into being how was that process uh well i started developing the book uh, and I actually had, I had a contract with a different publisher and that sort of fell through. Uh, and then Theon approached me and, uh, David Beth read what I had written and I mean, he loved it. So he decided to publish it. I'm very fortunate because I'm in a position that almost no author ever finds themselves in. I have almost complete creative control of my work. Uh, and David is just happy to produce it. I always tell people, ultimately I'm publishing these books for two, just two people, myself and my God, if everyone else likes them, that's great. And, uh, I mean, David and Jess, Jessica, especially have managed to just hit it out of the park with these books. So right, right. Um, but, but still, if you had the idea in the first place with another publisher, we don't have to name it. But how how did it come to that idea and how would a publisher then react to that? I'm just, you know, what I'm interested in and what you would like to hear from you is uh, it might sound to somebody um, quite a, a new and different idea from what your cult world produces in 21st century every day, right? Um, yeah. So how did, what, what I'm interested in to hear from you is how did people who you approached in the first place, not now, but a few years ago when it all started, how did people react to it? Was What res was the response that you got? Uh, well, people reacted to it the same way they do now for the most part. They're either on board immediately and want to know what they can do to get involved. 
or they're freaked out and distance themselves from it entirely. Uh, because I realize there is a very heavy cult vibe, uh, but uh, we're doing this. It's not that kind of a, an organization. Uh, so the first publisher um, kind of heard that there was a buzz about me. And so I sent him the very early version of this book and uh, I never really heard anything back from him, uh, which uh, I kind of... So he was part of those who were freaked out. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was kind of expecting that. But what's uh, what I kind of love about this is I do believe in order to better understand ancient devotional practices, um, you have to have sort of an artistic license at play, right? Uh, you have to be able to fill in a little bit of gaps with uh, things that make sense, um, as well as pick up where ancient texts leave off. So my approach to this devotional practice is not new or entirely my own. Uh, if you read through um, like the Greek magical papyri or the Coptic handbook of ritual power, my work mirrors that, right? And it is the same tech, but it's not necessarily the exact same formulas uh, or the same, you know, uh, divinities. Uh, but it is the same technology used in this book as in those. So it, I don't know, does it make sense? It doesn't, uh, it sort of continues where those conclude, I suppose. Is it, is it the prolongation of that practice into the 21st century? Would you, would you yeah, call it like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people who are fine. And again, this is totally fine. Uh, but they are satisfied with exploring the world that was left to us. But because I am in a different time and a different land, uh, I need to extend the ancient practice to where I am today. So I take all of those same elements and I build my devotion up using them, though it looks very different. I do feel like an ancient practitioner would be comfortable uh, watching my broadcasts or being a part of them. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that brings me to an, I believe, interesting point. Um, when you create a devotional practice, any, but a, a devotional practice, do you think, how much do you think it lives in the tradition of the gods where they initially were revered and they ever came from and how much does it live in the space and time that the, the peep the person who is practicing it um stands is there is there a gap between or does it change with time but or is it eternal and has to be the same like it was five thousand years ago what what's your feeling about that well i would say it overlaps there is sort of a misconception that spirituality throughout the ancient world was all one thing. Uh, but especially in ancient Egypt, Egypt extended way, way back in time. So there were 
ancient Egyptians who could still view ancient Egypt as being ancient, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, I mean, with that in mind, there was never just one way of practicing their religion. There was never just one way to interpret it. That's why creation myths varied. Uh, that's why uh, their hicca, their their magical practice uh, varied so greatly. It's because it changed with time. And not only that, but you think about their funerary papyri, uh, that all changed with time as well, including the 42 negative confessions or the 42 positive affirmations, depending on how you interpret that. All of those laws that you have to admit to the gods that you have not broken. I mean, if you read close enough, it almost suggests that those can change with time as well. So part of being an Egyptian was not solely the spiritual component, but part of being an Egyptian was part was being present in the society. It's uh, the same way with Mesopotamian societies as well. Uh, so I think it is okay for things to change with time. Um, ultimately so long as you're not being a jerk so <laughs> yeah okay friends and listeners um, this is now the little break that we take in the middle of our interview a very interesting interview i believe um, it's a completely new field and i find it highly interesting how devotional practice uh, almost a kind of a really religious and church practice, well, not almost, it is really a religious practice, can be seen in our days uh, with a completely um, old and very traditional background, very traditional and very ancient background. Um, so we hear more about that uh, in a few moments, but now we are going to hear another piece of music. It's another piece from that CD that I mentioned, Mozart in Egypt. And it is um, a concerto for oud and piano. You know, oud, that traditional Egyptian instrument. And this movement from, a con from that concert is inspired, of course, also by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, that famous Austrian composer. Mozart, I believe everyone here knows it, knows him. And the piece is inspired by his piano, one of his piano concertos, right? Piano concerto number 23, to be precise. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy. Um, after the piece of music, we go back directly to hear the second part of the interview with Reverend Zemi. And at the end of the interview, there is our third musical piece, again inspired by Mozart, and this again. Uh, it's called Lama Bada, the piece, and it's inspired from another piece by Mozart. And um, I hope you enjoy that type of music, really. And as I said before, stay tuned after the third piece of music, because there you will hear this vowel intonation meditation, well, an excerpt from it, a 10-minute excerpt from it, to give an idea about what Zemi and I have been talking here, and we'll be talking also in the second half of our talk. Right, but now it's time for Mozart in Egypt and the concert for Oud and Piano. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now I have to ask you for two, at least, well, at least one or maybe two definitions. Um, I always like to do that because when people who know what they're talking about uh, use a word, they have certainly something clearly in mind. You were speaking a lot, uh, using a lot the word devotion, right? Um, well, it's, I mean, of course, we all know what is meant by it, but could you give us your personal definition of the word devotion to see also what it means to you personally and and uh, why it is so important to you to have that in your life uh well like i said the ancient egyptians didn't differentiate their art from their medicine from their gods it was all one thing uh it is that way for me as well uh, i think a lot of people are comfortable referring to some of what I do as magic. Uh, but when I, um, let's see, when I look at a text, I will first look at the translations available, but I very often end up going back to the hieroglyphic or hieratic texts or the Coptic texts and working my way from those, translating them and everything. Uh, magic is a word that is often only applied from the outside of a people. So the people within the community practicing um, don't refer to what they're doing as magic. And so for that reason, 
I don't either. So uh, devotion for me is, um, I mean, I'm enshrined praying three times a day. Uh, I have certain periods where I fast. Um, I take medication so that I can have my head on straight. Um, I create uh, a substantial amount of art. That is probably the main way that I express my devotion to my God. Um, it's, it's pretty much consuming my whole entire life. So, so, and so you mean that, uh, your whole life is part of that devotion in a way. Yeah. 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 Living yeah. my best possible life, uh, so that I am worthy of my God's attention. Right. Right. How does that God show the attention? Well, through success, um, obviously I've got these two books, some of that, um, I attribute to the system of magic that I'm developing, the naturist system. Uh, but yeah, through these books, um, I had the opportunity to go back to school. So I'm doing that. I have met a lot of really amazing people, uh, when, um, you know, COVID kind of clears up. Uh, I'll actually, I'll be heading your way. I'll be going to Germany, London, okay. Egypt. Uh, just all of these opportunities have started opening up for me. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would say that, uh, yeah, that, that shows something I'm doing is getting acknowledged. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, well, you may, you kind of sensed me what was my second definition that I was going to ask you because you you, you almost gave the explanation already. The, uh, you were mentioning the system of magic that you're developing now twice, right? Um, so um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, a, how would you define magic in the first place? I know that's a tricky one, but uh, if you want to, um, what's magic to you? Let's put it rather that way, because I get the feeling that it's maybe a bit further away from the usual, the usual, uh, um, definitions we have for magic. And can you say us a bit more about that system of magic that you're about to develop and what, what it contains, what it's aiming for? Sure. Well, um, magic is kind of anything that helps you progress. And that doesn't necessarily mean progress toward um, something better, but something that helps you move forward in general. So, like I said, um, I take medication because without them, I lose my mind. So that medication is a form of magic. Um, I have a baby now, so raising that baby well is a form of magic. Uh, but then also um, going out under the new moon to consecrate talismans and amulets and phylacteries and things like that, that's also probably a little bit more familiar for most people when it comes to magic. But uh, the system I'm developing for naturism uh, begins at Zeptepi, or the very first moment. Before that, everything is chaos. And then you have to start building meaning in your life. So for this reason, um, everyone's approach to my system will look different, though it will all be the same. So it's understanding the fundamental elements of what's happening in your life, understanding that um, 
Human beings are not limited by their physical bodies, but extend outward forever and ever. The only terminal point is your God. Um, from far enough away, things kind of make sense. But if you zoom in on them, it all kind of you know turns to gibberish and same way. Uh, everything is the same, but exists as a polarity. So good is bad. They're just equal sides of the same um, well, I guess morality. Um, and then, yeah, the process of creation is not only making us, but we are also creating it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's about, again, constructing a little cosmos and then filling it with your own meaning. So, oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 that's okay. Do go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I, you read my mind because you, you were, you were anticipating another question of mine. And um, you just mentioned a few things like those two sides of the same thing, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which of course in common hermeticism, um, which of course also links back to thoughts, right? Um, uh, those, those seven hermetic principles, for example, right? Which of course are much, much later dated much later officially than the Egyptian, the old Egyptian times, but um, they are linked to thoughts. Um, are they present in your experience, in, in your veneration, in your devotion? Uh, are they part of it or are they for you something that has come later into that story and has no relevance to what you do there? Um, well, I suppose I did study um, the Hermetic Arts for just a little while before kind of breaking away from everything and developing my own path, my own system. So um, those principles are certainly uh, a part of what I do uh, because they helped me get here now. So they're in there somewhere. Uh, but ultimately, what I'm doing is separate from that. Um, I didn't, I couldn't handle there being so much about one topic, if that makes any sense. It kind of all turned into just this white noise. And now there are just thousands of books on any one topic. And they could all say the same thing. Some of them contradict each other. It's just whatever ser series of books you pick up and read is like sure, the way you do it. And that yeah. wasn't that interesting to me. So mm -hmm. I wanted something that made sense to me, something that I created with my own hands. So that's what I set out to do. Okay. But why do you think that what you created for yourself has created so much interest with others? That's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's surprising in the, to a certain extent. Huh? Um, well, I'm certainly surprised like locally where I live, this stuff, I can't talk about it out in public. It freaks people out. Um, so I'm, I am surprised that so many people have been so into what I'm doing. Um, I don't really know what the secret is. I'm just being, uh, genuine. And I think I am presenting certain historical information that people have probably never had the opportunity to find for themselves. Um, as well as opening an outlet for people to express themselves artistically. There have been a lot of people who have started tuning into the broadcasts or who have 
purchased my books and then found themselves writing pages and pages of poetry, or there are a couple of people who create sculptures, um, it awakens something within them. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what the secret is. I don't know what, uh, people are drawn to, but I appreciate that they are certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ultimately, like I said, I kind of publish these books. Everything I do is for myself and my God, but I certainly try to do it to the best of my abilities for all of the people participating. They're giving me their time, which is ultimately the most valuable thing they have. So I don't want to waste it for them. Yeah, sure, sure. You are yourself also working artistically, right? Maybe we should also talk about that to to the audience here and let them know. Um, you, you, you are an artistic creator yourself, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I was a, a musician and a poet and a visual artist. Um, but then when I started developing the Church of Flesh and Feather and my devotion to thought, uh, I sort of started redirecting all of that to my God exclusively. Uh, so now everything artistically that I do, I create for and through my God, and it started to find its own audience. So, I mean, I make um, like papyri- I make my own papyrus and then turn it into amulets. And the act of creating that amulet is artistic. Uh, and then I offer to the world and somebody buys it. So I've got these little talismans that I make now and yeah, those now it's, uh, it's really rewarding. I just, instead of making art for myself, I make it for my God and people are attracted to it. When, where can people get your artwork, your really, your artwork related to, to, to your, your God, where can they find it nowadays? Uh, well, they could either message me directly or I have an Etsy shop, uh, flesh and feather is the name of the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of working on developing, that's all relatively new. Uh, but as far as the devotional music is concerned, um, there is a Spotify channel called the sleep temple of Tehuti, mm-hmm. uh, or it's also on Apple podcasts and anchor for people who live in countries that don't have Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that I had this old cheap tongue, tongue drum and I was, I started playing it and intoning vowels and often these long string of vowels will be uh, spells that I write out and then just remove all of the consonants. So the intonation of these vowels is the activation of the spell. Uh, or a lot of the times they're like one hour long uh, performances and all of the vowel intonations um, are one enormous palindrome. Um, yeah, people seem to really enjoy the Sleep Temple of Tehuti as well. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, n- now I think we are at the point where um, we should do what we were briefly discussing before we started this interview, Jimmy. Um, uh, we, I have the book of flesh and feather here in front of me. And with your permission, I would like to show on the website also just that little, that little, little pyramid of vowels, I called it, right? Which, which, uh, which is called this, uh, the secret name of Ra, right? That's how you, that's the name you gave to it. And I wonder if it were possible for you here and now to, to, should we say perform or to read what, what would be the, the, the name you would give to it? What would be the, the, the verb you would use? That? Is it performing that or what would you name it? Um, I don't know. I guess uh, sing or intone sing. them. Yeah, intone. Yes. Okay. Well, if you could intone for us the secret name of Ra as it is in that book. And if I may then pu- publish just that little image of uh, so that people can not only hear what you do, but also see what the visual origin of what you do would be. And maybe you give two or three uh, little explanation lines with that as well. What what did we are going to hear and what what it means to you? Sure. Well, anybody uh, familiar with the Greek magical papyri is probably already familiar with this, uh, the vowel pyramid. Um, so its origins and exact function are um, kind of up for debate. Um, its practice extends uh, for several hundred years at the very least. Um, so because I was in writing this book, I was developing my own tiny cosmos. I just gave it a story. I attached it to the myth of a set tricking Ra out of his secret name to gain his power. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, this is how I introduce the intonation of vowels, which, uh, extends throughout this whole entire book and even a little bit into, uh, the litanies of thought, um, uh, but I've tweaked them just a little bit, but, um, yeah. So the intonation of the vowels is, uh, Okay. And this repetition in the pyramid, what does that mean? Why are there the first vowel, the A is is one. Then we have the E twice, etc. What what does that what does that mean in that case? Uh, well, they were stacked up like that um, as on a talisman, basically in the PGM. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the theories regarding the vowels is that they are to be sung, which is what I do on the Sleep Temple of Tahuti. Uh, so. Theoretically, um, say um, one, two, three, four, five, six. So, say you uh, just have um, like a four-four beat. Okay. The ah uh, would be a single note. Uh, mm-hmm. See, what I'm saying. Ah, okay. So it's about the length of the note, so to speak. Then. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, okay. Now I, I could imagine that we have people who listen to this podcast and who say, well, I'm really fascinated by that. And I want to get me those, that book with the, which has 200 pages of, of ritual in it, actually of, of, 
of performing ritual, right, in it. But yeah. um, and then you. But how would a person like that who is interested, how would they start with it? What, what do you think is the prerequisite? What do they have to, to know? How do they have to get into it? It's not just opening the book and chant those vowels. It's there's something behind that they have to do. Um, so how should they start with that? And what, how would you lead them? In what direction would you lead them to? get into touch with your God and perform those rituals in a way that makes sense to them and him. Yeah, well, this is an ecstatic practice. So you have to be comfortable moving around, uh, be it, you know, jumping around the room or simply just swaying. So um, I would recommend first setting the mood in the room you are in. Uh, so, you know, open your shrine, uh, provide plenty of offerings, like candles, start burning incense, um, and then... So, sorry, I just stop you for a moment. We don't have a shrine yet. So somebody is really, he's a starter. He bought that book, right? Okay. Um, then, so uh, yeah, where do we start? Set mood. Still set the mood, get some candles, burn some incense, prepare yourself, and then just start with the book. The very beginning is a very chaotic mix, and you'll probably have a difficult time uh, getting through it. Uh, it's all kind of jumbled, but as it starts to gain form, by all means, take it, do with it what you will. Make it your own. Like I said, naturism isn't about doing what I'm doing. It's, um, it's about taking what I'm doing and making it your own. So once you start feeling it, get into it, make it a whole entire, a whole body experience. Don't simply sit in a chair and read this book, but uh, experience it with your soul, with your hands and feet and eyes. Mm -hmm. in, in that respect, also the, the touch and the look of the book, of course, seems very important, right? Because it's a full experience of all senses, right? Yeah, it's a religious experience. I'm very happy and I know it's, Jessica Grove is the one who I think did most of the designing of this book. And I really have to thank her uh, just so much. She is an artist in her own right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I would like to guide people also a little bit towards your teachings that you offer. I don't know if you're already doing that or if that's a plan. You, uh, I found something on the Blackthorn School, it's called, um, which is a... Uh, a course I think you're teaching um, called Ancient Egyptian Magic in the Modern World, right? Yes. And um, it uh, speaks off, exactly. Yeah. Um, so tell us a bit about that course. What, what can people expect from it? What can they learn there? Why should they book it? Uh, well, that class sets out to teach people why the ancient Egyptians were doing specific things so that they can find modern parallels. Um, so say for instance, uh, the ancient Egyptians uh, saw it as a faux pas, certain ancient Egyptians saw it as a faux pas to eat uh, pork. Um, well, understand why they would not eat pork and then determine whether it made sense to not eat pork in your modern world. Um, so it's still, I think a lot of people in this community, they don't, they read a lot of literature that says you have to follow rules, but then they don't actually do it themselves. 
So I'm kind of hoping to uh, inspire people to have certain spiritual guidelines, but ones that make a little bit more sense to them. Uh, so we look at amulets and what their functions were, and then we kind of explore the nature of those feelings in our world today. So today, an amulet might not look like a scarab, but maybe it looks like a cicada, which, um, you know, are kind of similar. Um, trying to get not the specific elements of ancient Egyptian magic, but the theory applied to the modern world. And then as we speak, yeah, so that's Speak Thoth, ancient Egyptian magic in the modern world with the Blackthorn School. And then as we speak, I'm sort of trying to figure out how to effectively develop the teaching of my system that I refer to as naturism with the eight principles and all that. Um, it's a very daunting task, but I feel like I created it. So if I'm the person, if anybody's going to teach it, I'd be the one to do it. So mm -hmm. would you, uh, and this course that you can join it at any time or does it start and has it already started? Or is that a course that you can, Uh, join whenever you want, just just by booking it. Uh, well, it's a 13 week course, and I participate along with you. I don't want it to be just kind of like you hand me your money and I just push my whatever off onto you. I want to experience it with you. Ultimately, everybody's going to have a different experience. Everybody is going to see what I'm saying differently, feel it differently. So I want to experience that with them. Uh, so we go in these groups we call cohorts, and it's a 13-week class. I think the next class starts on June 28th. So enrollment... So it's a live, it's a live class. It's not a pre-recorded, it's live, right? Uh, well, there are videos, uh, but then there's also a Facebook page, like a private Facebook page that I interact with you on. Okay. Uh, It's really great. I've only had one cohort so far, but I think I've become friends with pretty much everybody who's been through it. So, yeah. but, but sorry, I interrupted you. You said it was June 28th with the next start, so to speak. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'll put to make sure we put that also on the website, on the, on the show notes that people can find that Blackthorn school with that course, which I found uh, very interesting. Everything that you say, Zemi, sounds to me like this is very much uh, a type of church of the 21st century because you are, you are using technology and possibilities of communication that, of course, was not present 20, 30 years ago, but also the way of liberty and leave it to the individual to their, I, I'd almost say the Thelemic word of true will, right? How they interact with their God or your God um, is, it seems very, very modern to me, right? Um, would you agree or do you see that differently? Uh, well, I would say I agree. I mean, I can't live in the past. You know what I mean? These gods aren't locked in the past. So, I develop a well, well, but that's exactly the point that I'm making, because I think many people in general would say gods live in, well, in their own world, maybe, but in the past, because they're ancient gods. And you're exactly saying the, the opposite. 
Yeah. I mean, time is, and this is going to sound pretty woo woo. So I know this, but no, it's okay. <laughs> time is sort of uh, an illusion. So the past is gone. If the gods lived in the past, the gods would be gone. So uh, all we have is right now. And ultimately, I'm not that old. So, I mean, I'm using the tools that I have to interact with my god and the people who want to interact with their gods. So, I don't know. Ultimately, though, um, it is sort of up to the individual to figure out how to work it. Um, If they're not sincere about it, it won't work. So... I mean, sure. that being said, there will always be a group of people who say the most dramatic things have happened to them. Uh, you know, you know, those people, uh, sure. I don't know the people though, who are not sincere in their pursuit of this gnosis. I mean, they know that they're insincere and they know that it won't work ultimately. So, um, I don't yeah, know. inside themselves, they must feel it and know it as you say. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, we're here for them uh, if they want to participate, but if not, I'm not pushing it on anyone. <laughs> How much time does somebody who wants to work in that direction, how much time daily, weekly, I don't know, you should invest I use that word. It's maybe not the best word, but you should you should offer to to that devotional praxis in order to make it a a working a working feature for yourself. Um, I don't know. I invest virtually my entire life. Uh, yeah, but but you are you are particular in that case, won't? Yeah. You? So I don't know what. Uh, I guess you'd have to just ask anybody uh, specifically. I know people who just do the uh, prayer enshrine three times a day and, you know, how much time would that be? Um, Well, I've got a, like I said, I have a new baby. So my whole entire life has been kind of jumbled around. So Hmm. uh, enshrine um, can be anywhere from half an hour to three hours. It depends on what I'm doing in there. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. No, but I mean, somebody, uh, not you, but somebody who would like to, to practice with the church of flesh and feather, right? How, how much time would they have to invest into that to, to have a serious output? Yeah. I, yeah. I have no idea. I've never told anybody how much time to put into it. It's uh, just kind of however much, I think ultimately you will get out of it what you put in. So sure. I mean, I certainly have. I know people certainly have. Um, so I guess that'll be my answer. Yeah. You put in as much time um, as you want to get the results that you want, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Got you. Got you. What are your next plans? Are you planning on any new books or any other particular events you told us about your travel that you're planning is that related to talks or what what what's what should people be on the lookout for if they want to follow your further development and that of the church of flesh and feather yeah well i'm in kind of a terrifying position right now um in as much as i feel like i can do just about whatever i want right now uh so i have i have three books in the works one of them is just about folklore. The other two are occult in nature. Um, I'm working on 
So the Church of Flesh and Feather acknowledges certain saints, right? So in my own tiny little universe, the people that helped me align with my God, I have canonized. So like Vajal Lindsay is one, uh, Sun Ra is one, um, Alice Coltrane is another one. Um, but Vajal Lindsay has been a lifelong hero of mine and I've dedicated like 21 years of my life to preserving his work and legacy. So I've canonized him. I'm working on a hagiography of his life, of all of his most eccentric experiences um, to present to the occult community. Um, like I said, 21 years is a long time. I'm only 30. Yeah, because um, yeah, it was most of your life, basically. <laughs> yeah, and uh, for most of that time, nobody has ever paid attention to anything that I'm talking about with regards to Basil Lindsay, uh, who is ultimately America's great overlooked occultist. And uh, I have offered his life and work to the occult community and they've just, they've fallen in love with him as well. So um, I'm going to continue with that. Um, like I said, I'm working on the class to help teach naturism. Uh, I'm working on oracle cards, um, like Tehuti inspired oracle cards. Um, yeah, just a whole bunch of crazy stuff. A documentary about Bigfoot in my sort of mundane life, Sasquatch, okay. you know, so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So lots of things to do and looking after the baby as well. Yeah, or dragging her along with it, with everything. Yeah, yeah. Good, good to get into it. Well, Demi, I thank you very much for, for that very interesting talk, inspiring, and, and uh, uh, I hope you get also a lot of response on that from people who were listening to it today. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for being with us here. And I don't know, you have any final thought or any final advice to people who are listening? Any final advice? Uh, wash your hands and continue to wear masks in public. My baby just got sick for the very first time in her whole life. And it was because some jerk with a cold at the grocery store sneezed in our direction. So wear your masks. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Absolutely. Thank you, Zemi. And um, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye now. Take care.
Okay, thank you, Reverend Zemi, for that lovely talk and for the time you gave to us. And I hope many of you will maybe also turn to his Facebook page and to get a bit more information about that or especially have a look at that beautiful book at Theon Publishing. It's really a treasure to have in your library. As promised now, before I do the announcement of next week's show, we will listen to a 10-minute excerpt from a vowel intonation meditation, one of those devotional practices that uh, Reverend Zemi has mentioned and is the core of um, what he produces also on the internet. Um, if you're interested to get more, get on the YouTube channel. You'll find all the information also on Zemi's uh, Facebook page. But this is now himself with that vowel intonation meditation excerpt. Hail to you, Tehuti, who is the star-thrower. Hail to you, Samisalam Kasef, who is the encloser of all. Hail to you, in all of your f forms, the word made flesh, the flesh made feather. Hail to you, in all of your names. Lift up your ba in the morning, O Lord, which burns as the sun. Bring me another morning another pure achet, and I will think on you and chatter you praises. Selah.
Okay, that excerpt of a vowel intonation meditation by Reverend Zemi closes our interview part now in a different way than usual. And with that, we come towards the end of this week's show, and I hope you really enjoyed it. And you are going to be back for next week. Next week, we have a completely different topic. Our guests on the interview next week will be Don Webb. Don Webb, who many of you, I'm sure, know uh, A, as an author of uh, occult fiction, um, dark fiction, I would also call that um, fantasy and science fiction, but mostly also because he used to be for many years the high priest of the Temple of Sait. And he is a specialist on the left-hand path, left-hand path magic, and all related to it. He has recently published a new book with inner traditions called Energy Magic of the Vampire. That will be part of the subject of our talk, but of course, also his personal background and what brought him to what he is and was. When we talk about vampires, he will explain to us, like he does in that book, that how a vampire is not a blood-sucking mythical figure, but a shaman who is skilled in gathering, using and storing energy for magical power and personal liberation. So I think that will be a really interesting topic and I hope to have you back with us. The new episode shall be released on Sunday, the 20th of June, a week from today. Right, well, that was it for today on the Thoughts Harvest podcast. That was episode number eight of season six. I I'm looking forward to have you back in a week and for today I can only say take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.